Well, let me ask you, does it surprise you? Are you surprised when you hear of Christians being crucified in Iraq? I mean, does it surprise you when you hear um, churches being burned in China? Does it surprise you to hear Christian evangelists being killed in India? Does it surprise you um, people lose their jobs in Saudi Arabia? Does this surprise you at all? I mean, when Christians are suffering, are you, like when you read it, are you shocked? Are you wondering what must be going on? Why is this happening? I mean, does it surprise you? I mean, for many of us, it leads to a degree of uncertainty over the power and the presence of God's kingdom. It it leaves us a little bit shaken. You know, as, as we've looked at the kingdom throughout the Gospel of Matthew, you know, I've tried to repeatedly trace back to you, back to Genesis, the kingdom being established by God in the creation of the world and, and the bringing of the man and the woman into the kingdom, and, and them rebelling against the kingdom, throwing the kingdom off by their own disobedience. The kingdom going into collapse, if you will. And then you see through the whole Old Testament these kingdoms that tried but failed, tried but failed. And then Jesus appears on the scene in Matthew, and what does he do? He introduces a kingdom. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. God is now moving back among his people to reclaim his kingdom. This is great news. But then we see this tragedy. And so clearly it leaves people with this dilemma. Well, if God's kingdom is present in Christ, why is there the presence of such evil? In the same place. I mean, if Christ is is king of a kingdom, then why isn't he believed? If Christ is the king of a kingdom, then why are we suffering? If Christ is the king of the kingdom, then why hasn't judgment fallen? And it really causes some people to struggle. And that's the point of this parable. The parable was written to explain to us how to survive, how to understand this commingling of a kingdom of light that's come in glory and power in the midst of a kingdom of darkness. And here's what we find. We find clearly that this kingdom will grow without any doubt. It will grow. I'm going to touch on it this week. I'm going to hit it hard next week. The kingdom's going to grow. But here's the thing. It grows in the midst of evil. It grows in the environment of darkness. That's the soil in which it grows. And it will prevail. It will triumph. It will be glorious. If you will, turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to look at 24 to 30, which is the parable. And then you're going to see the explanation. This is the second parable Jesus gives with both a parable and an explanation. Very thankful for that. It makes understanding it significantly easier. So Matthew 13, 24. He says, he put another parable. And that that word, by the way, put another, it's like serving up a plate of food. It's like serving a teaching. So Jesus is serving us right now by giving us this word. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. 
And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Now in verse 36, he says, Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. There is... There is a, a, just so much here that can be helpful to us this morning. Uh, the first thing I think you see is the kingdom's going to grow, assuredly so. If you, see, if you look right at 24, he says, He put another parable before them. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in the field. It's going to grow. Now, this is a bit of a surprise. Not to us. We're now 2,000 years past this preaching, and so we've seen the kingdom of God already do some amazing growth. But it would have surprised them. Because remember now, uh, while the crowds were strong in following Jesus, much of it was just over fascination, over interest. You know, most of the crowds we've seen, and you know, even after he taught in 5, 6, and 7, in 8 and 9, he did those fantastic miracles, and then 10, 11, and 12, he faces what? Ambivalence? Kind of an antagonism among the people? I mean, the the Pharisees were clearly and diametrically opposed to Jesus wanting to destroy him. So at this point, Jesus really didn't have a lot of followers. He had the 12. Notice in 36, when he goes into the house, nobody else goes in to ask him, what do you mean by that? He didn't have a lot of followers. How about go all the way to the execution of Christ at the cross? Who's there? A few women? Didn't have a lot of followers. So they're probably thinking about this kingdom you've been mentioning, is it really going to grow? I mean, is this thing really going to take off? Is it really going to advance? I mean, right now, everything's looking pretty bleak for the growth of the kingdom. But Jesus wants us to know, oh no, it's going to grow. It's going to grow. He's planting good seed, and it's going to progress. It's going to increase. This nature of the Son of Man sowing the seeds. This is an agricultural metaphor, and by nature it's a growth metaphor. The seeds are going to go into the ground, and they're going to take root, and they're going to produce a crop of the sons of the kingdom. His gospel preaching will produce believers. There's no doubt about that. We know it both in the metaphor that it's a seed that grows, But we also see it in the fact that he doesn't worry about the threat of the weeds. The weeds aren't a threat to him. 
Let them, bro- let them both grow. We'll take care of it at the end. This idea that these seeds are going to become the suns of righteousness that will shine brighter than the sun. So he knows it's going to grow. There's a certain confidence that Jesus has here in the growing of the kingdom. There's a certain confidence that you as a Christian ought to have over the nature of the kingdom. It's good seed. That word good is actually used in the soil that it speaks about in just the parable of the sowers from last week. It's the only soil that produced a fruit, and it was good soil. This is good seed, and this good seed's going to produce a fruit. We want to have confidence. When it talks about him sowing, by the way, this idea of sowing is him just preaching the gospel. It's declaring that a kingdom has come. This good seed is the news that Jesus Christ has come into the world to become a curse for us that we might be sons of the kingdom. Think about it for a minute. At the beginning, I talked about the kingdom being established in Genesis 1 and 2, the kingdom falling in Genesis 3, the collapse, if you will, of the kingdom. And remember what happened to the first couple? God brought a curse on all creation. And forever, the kingdom spun out of control. Now Jesus comes back and he's bringing a new kingdom. He becomes the curse that we might re-enter the kingdom. This is what he's announcing, but people didn't get it. They didn't get it initially, but now here we, you and I, are evidence to the truth of this parable. I mean, when you see, you can see the kingdom take root in a soul when you see a person who is absorbed with themselves move to humbly and joyfully submit to God. When you see a person absolutely in love with themselves and it gives way to love for neighbor, love for God, submission, willing sacrifice, you know the kingdom has taken root. This is the good seed that's going to grow, and we're now visible demonstrations of the truth of this parable. I want you to have the confidence in the good seed. I want you to have the confidence in the power of the gospel actually changing people. I mean, the, the, the confidence we have, it isn't that when every time I preach the gospel, people are going to bow their heads and pray. No, 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 it's a slow, incremental growth of the kingdom. And we'll see that in the parable of the, of the leaven and the mustard seed. But for today, I just want you to think about, do I have confidence in this good seed? It's a good seed. It grows not by the ingenuity of the preacher, not by the eloquence of the gospel presenter. It grows because of the power of the message. In other words, I want us to have as a church and you as Christians to have confidence in the truth of Jesus Christ being declared as the king of a kingdom. That's where our confidence rests. I think that's what the scripture calls us for. If you were to look in Mark, Mark has parables in his gospel as well. And one in particular is in chapter 4. It's similar to this one, but it's not the same parable. Let me just read you a couple lines out of it. He says, And Jesus said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and it rises. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. There's a mystery to it all. The farmer doesn't understand how the seed actually, what it does to to die and then produce fruit. In other words, the confidence is in the seed. The farmer's sleeping. The technique and the diligence of the farmer, while they may be a means, they are not the cause of the growth. And so we can rest in the power of the gospel. 
That's why Charles Spurgeon, great preacher, said that there are many people who can preach the gospel better than I, but they can't preach a better gospel. The gospel is the gospel. And whether you preach it well or whether you fumble through it, the seed is going to sprout. That's where our confidence to be. He wants us to see. And this is important for you to know because the next part of this sermon is going to be very gripping and very bracing. But I want you to know that the power is in the seed. So, so we as Christians, if you're a Christian here, your confidence is in the gospel, producing fruit. And that really leads us to the next point about the growth of this kingdom. It now comes through us. Jesus is the sower. He's sowing the seed. He's preaching. I don't want you, if you're a Christian here, to think that this pulpit is the primary place of sowing. This is the primary place of teaching and edifying the church as a whole, equipping the saints to do the work of ministry, Paul says in Ephesians 4. But the primary place of sowing is not institutionally driven in the church per se, but through your lives, through the framework of the normal relationships you have, the the families that you have, the friends in your community, the people at work. You are the sowers. You're the ones that are declaring the good news of Jesus Christ. That's, I think, where the, the sowing is to take place. I mean, very few people, if you think about it, you know, very few, if, if you talk to a Muslim, if you talk to a Hindu, very few, or yourself, if someone invites you to a mosque, will you go? Will you go? Probably not. I mean, most of us, I don't think I'd ever go to a mosque. I, maybe to see it, as I have before, but I don't think I'd ever go to a mosque. The, the interchange with people is going to take place often with the unbeliever outside the church. Sure, some unbelievers come in. Some people think they're believers. They're not believers come in, and, and we welcome them, most assuredly. But by and large, the sowing takes place outside of the institutional church, and that's through you. Do you have confidence in the good seed? Do you have confidence that sowing the gospel actually will bring a person to life or even to drive them away to death? I was praying this morning before coming up here, knowing that my words are going to propel some of you to love Christ greater, and it's going to move some of you away from him. That's a terrifying thing. That's why Paul said, who is up for such a task? It's profound in its weight. But do you understand the call to sow? That's, that's, that's your call. And, and I encourage you. I, I want you recognizing that if you don't sow and participate, it's not going to stop the advance of the kingdom. It'll just remove you from the joy of participating in it. So that's the first point I think Jesus is making. That the kingdom is going to grow, and it's going to grow slowly, and it's going to grow through you, the believer, as you engage people. Remember now, it's not presenting this perfectly articulated doctrine. You simply are telling people what God has done for you. It's like the demoniac. If you remember him in Mark 4, he wanted to follow Jesus. And Jesus said, just go back and tell them what God has done for you. That's that's the declaration of the gospel. Here's what he's done for me. Okay, the second thing I want you to see in this text that's really, really bracing is that the kingdom not only grows but it grows in the context of conflict persecution and wickedness now listen this would have been another secret of the kingdom 
To the Jew, the coming of the Messiah would have been a massive reordering of social and political and spiritual structures. Everything would have changed. The coming of the Messiah to the Jewish person would have been a cataclysmic event. Evil would be destroyed. There would be the separation of the sons and daughters of light from the sons and daughters of darkness. It would have been massive. And we know this. We know this not only from the readings of the Old Testament, but even John the Baptist, when he's announcing Jesus Christ, here's what he says in Matthew chapter 11. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork, that fork to separate the wheat and the chaff, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, and he will gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he'll burn with unquenchable fire. Do you see the closeness of John's preaching to the parable that Jesus just gave? And so John is thinking, John, John is thinking, I am the forerunner of the Messiah who's going to bring the kingdom, and when the kingdom comes, everything's going to change. And guess what? It didn't. It didn't change. Jews didn't come that way. Jesus came preaching a gospel of the kingdom, a gospel of repentance. Jesus began healing people. He began preaching to people. He didn't bring about this separation. He didn't bring about a reordering. He didn't bring back a pushing of Rome to the sea. And here's what happened to John. John was so convinced, and he missed it. He doubted. He sent his disciples to Jesus and said, Are you sure you're the one, or should we look for another? And what did Jesus say? Jesus complimented him. I mean, who's greater than John on this earth? But he said, you go back and tell John what you've seen. The deaf hear and the blind see and the lame walk. In other words, those saints in the Old Testament didn't get the secret of the kingdom that there is an interval between the coming of Christ bringing the gospel and the coming of Christ bringing about judgment. That's the point of the parable. And you see this because when Jesus speaks about the owner and the servants were sleeping, and he began to sow wheat, weeds among the wheat. This idea, this darnel, it's, uh, it's like, it looks like wheat when it grows at the beginning stages of its growth. But these weeds were more than just weeds. And, and, and as they would grow up, you wouldn't notice them. The way to discern them is the ear on the weed is smaller than the ear of the wheat. But you only see that later, once the roots are entwined. And, and this was a wicked act in this parable. So in the parable, he says, these, this enemy came and he sowed this, he sown this weeds throughout the wheat. Destructive act. Why? Well, it's not just a weed. It doesn't just reduce the nutritional value of the wheat, but it actually can be poisonous, give you stomachache. It even can lead to vomiting. So here, this enemy of Jesus has actually wrought to destroy the harvest. He wants to ruin the harvest. And of course, Jesus makes very clear to us who this enemy is. It's the devil. I mean, the devil, Satan, has worked at undermining the people of God. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. You shouldn't be surprised by this. Again, going back to the kingdom theme, back in Genesis 3, it's Satan that, what, began sowing thoughts of God's unlovingness to put a tree that they couldn't eat. Are you sure he said that? 
sowing seeds of doubt, distorting God's word, leaving them questioning the goodness of God. I mean, that's been Satan's modus operandi the whole time. It's to try to distort God's word, to try to lead us to distrust in God and his word. It's to open up rebellion. You should deserve more than that. Hey, if God really wants you to be happy, you should be able to do this. I mean, how many, how many lies? I, all those examples, I have bought hook, line, and sinker before and just followed them into the path that I already wanted to go anyways, frankly. And Satan just helped me get there. But Jesus is making clear that the conflict that we're going to have has demonic roots. It doesn't mean that man is not responsible. And I cannot tease out for you the distinction between man's hard-heartedness and evil that comes from men and the demonic, dark workings behind the curtain. I don't know that. I know they both exist. And they both operate at the same time. And that's Jesus' point. And here's the thing. When the disciples or the servants come to the owner of the field, hey, do you want us to pull up the wheat? He says, no, wait. Wait, because I don't want to uproot the wheat. But what's interesting here is he's telling us clearly there's going to be an interval of time where the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness is going to exist together. Exist together. That's his point. That the kingdom of God will grow in the midst of and in the presence of evil. Now this helps us, and this should help you quite a bit. If you struggle in the Christian life, there's that inner turmoil that we have. That you know, you never seem to get it. You see what you're supposed to be in Scripture, and then you look at the portrait of your own life, and they seem very far apart, and it can be very discouraging. I want you to know part of the reason that the life of the Christian is difficult is because we are children of light living in the midst of the children of darkness. I I mean, we do that which we don't want to do, and we don't do that which we want to do. It's that dilemma that Paul speaks about in Romans chapter 7. We struggle in the Christian life. Sanctification is a struggle to walk in holiness and to pursue God and to knock down the secondary loves that we make primary. It's hard work, and it's difficult. The temptations are there, both in dwelling sin, that I have sins that I want to walk out. And to fight that is difficult work. And then the onslaught of darkness, promoting and encouraging me to go in the ways that seem right to me. I can always convince myself that God wants me to do what I've already decided I want to do. I mean, people say, well, God's leading me in this. I'm... Buddy, you were leading yourself in it before God ever jumped on the train. I mean, oftentimes we, we, we just, we, we, yeah, I think you know what I mean. The, the reality of it is, this explains to us why we have this inner turmoil and why we have this struggle. I want you to engage the struggle. I want you to know why you have it. I also want you to know that it's not just the inner struggle we have, but this explains why we have an outer struggle. This is why a lot of people look at this parable and they think it speaks to the nature of the false believers and the true believers within the church. They see the battle taking place inside the church. Now granted, the church has plenty of battles within its walls, no doubt. But I don't think it's speaking to that because the seed that he sows is in the field and the field that he sows is the world, it's not the church. So I think he's speaking about the nature of the conflict that we receive from Satan mediated through the agencies of people and institution 
that brings about havoc on the church. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 6, we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. There is a fight against the children of God. There is a big fight. This doesn't mean that we're just to lay down and say, well, it's going to be evil. That's the way it is. I just want you to know that the, that the beheadings and the crucifixions and the loss of jobs and the houses being burned down, there's a reason for that. It's because the children, the kingdom of God is advancing in the midst of the kingdom of darkness. That's why. And it's mediated through governments. It's mediated through people. It's mediated through neighbors. That's why Peter writes in his first letter, don't be surprised by the fiery ordeal that you're experiencing, as if something strange is happening to you. Folks, we've lived in candy land in this country, and we don't understand what people have as their environment. Do you realize, and do you believe this? If you're, if you're here today, what do you make of this? I mean, do you believe in supernatural activity? I mean, do you believe in the reality of Satan? 60%, according to one Barna poll, said that Satan is a symbol of evil. Well, let me tell you, there's a world of difference between a symbol of evil and the reality of a being intending to produce evil. There's a world of difference between those two. Where do you fall on that? C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. I reference it often because it's a, it's a great book. If you haven't read it, you really ought to read it. Screwtape Letters, it's a small book. It's m- immensely engaging. And it's written from the standpoint of, uh, of um, a senior devil working with a junior devil. A junior devil, he's just coming on the ranks of becoming a tempter. And so he's out tempting. And, he's, and the people that he is tempting are called patients. It's his patient. So the senior devil is instructing a junior devil. So it's kind of taking a look at this world we live in with good and evil, with the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And, and so here's, what, um, here's a little dialogue between the two. Okay, so this is a junior devil now learning how to tempt. He goes, I don't think you'll have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. So the, the senior devil is instructing the junior devil that the human being he's trying to tempt, he's saying, you won't have trouble keeping him in the dark about Satan's presence. He says the fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. Do you understand the nature of darkness? You know, this is where the value of the church just kind of, for me, rises to the surface here. Do we pray? Do we, are we concerned about one another? Because in 1 Peter, he says that he's... That Satan is um, like a lion prowling about, seeking whom he can devour. In, in fact, we see this played out in the life of Peter and Jesus. Jesus says this in Luke ten thirty one, uh, Luke twenty two thirty one. Excuse me. He says, um, Simon, Simon, Satan demands to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Boy, just the imagery is intimidating. So Satan's not 
playing games. He's playing for keep. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. This is the value of the church. I mean, are we praying that our faith will not fail? I I am concerned for those on the outside. That you come periodically or, or the church is secondary in your life. You're on the outside. In a context like this, this is where you want to be. I mean, being known and knowing people and praying for them. Do we pray for one another's faith to not fail? Keith did that for those that are suffering right now, for those in Iraq and Syria and North Korea and Sudan. God, help their faith not fail. Give them grace to withstand. We can't just pray that they're delivered out of it. This is the environment we live in. It's like taking a fish out of water. The fact that we have not suffered greatly in this country. I'm thankful that God has chosen to put us here. But can we pray for one another that our faith not fail among the affluence? We're praying for them that their faith may not fail in the midst of great antagonism. It's a profound lesson to learn. You need to know this to survive. You say, is this a practical sermon? Yes, it's immensely practical for you to understand the environment in which you will thrive as a Christian and the need you have for one another. Praying for, laboring for. Well, I'm so thankful that, that it doesn't, the parable doesn't stop there. So this kingdom is going to grow. It's going to grow in the context of darkness, but it's going to be victorious. This is the hope we have. This is where we're going to drive our stake. You know, a lot of times people get debating over who the mixed, you know, are the mixed seeds and are they the believer and unbeliever and all that. The reality of it is the par- harvest is what we're pointing to. And, and you see the harvest in verse 40. He talks about it. At the end of 36, which is normal, the servants come, they gather, they harvest the fields, they reap the fields, and then they separate them, right? Because you don't want chaff with the wheat. You separate them. The chaff goes in fuel for the fire, and the wheat goes into the barn. And that's seen all the time, every season in this world. And then Jesus says, the Son of Man. So he puts himself as the sower. He says, the Son of Man will send out angels into his field, and he will gather from the fields all those who cause others to stumble in all lawbreakers. He's speaking to, what I want you to understand here, and this is really essential, he is speaking to those who have rebelled against the gospel, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 7 and 9. They have disobeyed the gospel. They haven't believed. He's gathering up, not just the rapists and the murderers. Please expand your view. When he goes through and he pulls out of the harvest, those tares... Remember now, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. In John 8, 44, he says to the Pharisees, the religious, he says, you're sons of the devil. What are the tares called? Sons of the evil one. It's the same group. It's the religious. The religious who don't come to the gospel. They don't come to God through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're coming to God on their own merits. They're coming to God on what they haven't done. Well, I haven't done this. And I, I ask people that, well, why do you think you're going to go to heaven? Well, I haven't done this, and I haven't done this, and I haven't done this. And I say, well, okay. I mean, you haven't, do you have, have you done anything? I mean, besides what you haven't done? We come with our list of, of, of this is what's going to make God happy. That's part of the group. And this is the frightening news to me. This is what makes preaching so fearful, is people are thinking their religiosity is putting them in the barns with the wheat. It doesn't happen that way. 
So it's, it's, it's not just the wickedness that you see on the street and on the paper. It's that silent rebellion against God when I don't walk after his son. It's that silent rebellion. It's that smug satisfaction that I have. And not humble and contrite and broken before the holiness of God. It's that lack of awe and reverence. You know, that, yeah, I'm coming to worship. Do we understand what we're doing? So, so these are going to be gathered together. And it says, I want you to see, the Son of Man gathers them together. And it, you know, I've already explained this to you about three or four times through Matthew 12, through the first 12 chapters. The Son of Man is a reference to Daniel. It's the one who's chosen by God who will execute his judgment. It's his judge that he's bringing forth. Listen, in Daniel 7, it says this, I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that's God, and was presented before him. Okay, and it says, and to him was given. So God gave to the Son of Man dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom will be one that shall not be destroyed. But his kingdom will destroy all the kingdoms. Now this same Son of Man who's going to come and execute judgment is the Son of Man at the harvest. We see the same picture of the Son of Man, Jesus, in Revelation 14, where he says this, Then I looked, and behold, do you notice the same language? Daniel had a vision, now John has a vision. He says this, I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on a cloud, one like Son of Man, with a golden crown on his head, a sharp sickle in his hand, another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. That is what we're looking at, at the days ahead. The kingdom's going to grow. It grows in the midst of conflict. But then the kingdom will triumph because the Son of Man sits on the cloud, a gold crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. But look at what he says for the righteous. He says in the 43rd verse, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. In other words, that in the judgment, he draws the wheat into the barns. He draws the righteous shining like the sun in its strength. He's taking this right out of Daniel chapter 12, where Daniel writes, and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. He's speaking about those of us who have repented of our sins and have trusted in the Son of Man to be the one to reconcile us to God. We've confessed our sins. We've placed our faith in Christ. We've submitted to the Son of Man. Jesus said simply, I've come that you might have life and life to the full, and we've gone to him for that life. And these sons of righteousness that will shine like the strength of the sun in all of its glory, they're going to be the inheritors of God's joy. They're going to be in the safety of the barn. They're going to be in the joy. In fact, let me read to you. This is from Charles Spurgeon's sermon on this text. He said, every hour the saints are being gathered into the barn. That is where they want to be. We feel no pain at the news of ingathering. Think about that now. They feel no news of... They fear no news of death. 
He says, we feel no pain at the news of ingathering, for we wish to be safely stored up by our Lord. If the wheat that is in the field could speak, every ear would say, the ultimatum for which we are living and groaning is the barn, the granary. For this frosty night, for this sunny day, for this the dew and the rain, and for this everything. Every process with the wheat is tending towards the granary. So it is with us. Everything is working towards heaven, towards the gathering place, towards the congregation of the righteous, towards the vision of our Redeemer's face. Our death will cause no jar in our life music. Boy, is that amazing. If we could be a people, our deaths will cause no jar in our life music. It'll involve no pause or even discord. It's part of the program, the crowning of all history. That's what it is. We're talking about the summation and the bringing of all history to close. We will be with the Son of Man in all of his glory. People, is that not something to long for? Is that not something to think about and dwell upon? And that's why Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. This is an act of grace to us. He who has ears, let him hear. I mean, think about it. In 36, when it was only the disciples that went after Jesus. Think about it. In 24 to 30, he gave the parable to the crowds. And then he leaves them. He leaves them. We learned last week, parables are to obscure and they're to reveal. Parables obscure those who are hard-hearted against God. They reveal those who are humble and contrite. And only the disciples went and he explained it to them. See, the gospel causes a separation. Causes a separation between the righteous and the unrighteous. It, 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 you know, and we see it, good soil, bad soil, wheat, tares, Matthew 25, wise virgins, foolish virgins, sheep and goats. The gospel's always creating separation. If, if you're not a Christian here, if you're uncertain to where you are with God, you don't know for certain that you're in the kingdom. I would, do you have ears to hear what I'm saying? You hear the words I'm saying, I, I get that. But do you hear it with, with concern over your soul? The way to the kingdom is simple, and it's not simplistic. It's free, but it's not without cost. In other words, the way to the kingdom of God is through repentance. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. And, the, and I'm saying this for the non-Christian here. I'm also saying this to you, the Christian, as you sow the seed. He says, repent. What repentance means is I take ownership of all of my sins. I'm no longer blaming situations and blaming other people and, and blaming maybe some personal habits I have. It's no, this is my sin, God. I've sinned against you. I've lived without regard for you or little regard for you. And I repent of it. In other words, I don't want it anymore. I'm sorry about it. I want to stop and I need your help. That's what repentance is. It's a turning away. I'm going to go the other way by your grace. And and faith means I'm trusting that Jesus Christ is sufficient to save me from who I know I really am. And, and, And to save me from all of my catalog of things done and not done. And and so I'm coming him with just a bucket load of stuff. And I'm leaving it at the cross, and I'm going to follow the Savior, trusting my soul's safety to his care. That's what it means to enter the kingdom of God. And if you're here, and you have ears to hear that, and you've never done that, then you're not part of the kingdom of God. 
You're part of the sons of evil. You may not feel evil, but the scripture doesn't give us a third group. You're either the child of God or you're not. Now, for the Christian, when you look at this text and you see the kingdom grow, it grows in the midst of evil, and then it looks forward to that day that it's going to grow triumphantly. What do you do in light of this? How do you live in light of this day? Well, there's a lot of implications I could give you. Let me just throw out a few. I'm going to ask you to think about this with the balance of your afternoon. I think, hopefully, you would see the weight of this, that it's more important than a football game, if you're uncertain about this. It's more important than anything you have to do to consider this. So the Christian looks at this, and we live in light of the day. How do we live in light of the day? Well, first, we want to live pursuing holiness. Because you're saved doesn't encourage laxness in life. In fact, Peter says it very clearly for us. He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? Living lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord. There's a pursuit of holiness that only the Christian feels. Not a legalistic pursuit by any stretch. We have a destination that we're getting to. To see the God who is purely holy. But also to live in light of the day would be to look forward to the day. Folks, I know you've got a thousand thoughts in your mind right now. One of them that you need to drive a stake in is the day. Do you think about it? Do you consider it? Do you ever play out that scene of when you pass through this life and you see the face of Christ? Do you ever think what it's going to be like? Do you ever think what you're going to say? What are you going to do? Jonathan Edwards speaks about we're pilgrims. And pilgrims that are on a journey toward a destination, they don't build homes. They don't rest. They don't just try to find all the joy in life in the journey. They have the destination in view. They're always looking at the destination. In fact, the hardship of the journey is wrapped up in their excitement to get to the destination. And that's us. We need to give thought to it. Jesus, in Hebrews chapter 9, he says that he came once to take away sin. He's going to come again to those who are eagerly waiting salvation. Would eagerly waiting describe how you think about seeing him? Now, for me, it often doesn't explain it. And so what do I do? I repent. God, please give me a hunger for it. Give me taste buds that just long for that. I don't naturally think of heaven. I naturally think about what I have to do tomorrow. But tomorrow, then I think about the next day. And then the next day, I think about the next day. And so we have to ask God, give us grace. Another thing, I mean, in living in light of the day is living in light of the fact that God has a purpose. He has a schedule. He has a plan. I mean, folks, don't think the world's spinning out of control. Don't think that ISIL is some new spot on the radar as if Tilla the Hun didn't exist and Hitler didn't exist and Stalin didn't exist. And if we live another two or 300 years, there are going to be 10 more ISILs coming down the road. You know, God has a plan. Let's pray for his justice to be done. Let's look forward to his coming and establish his... Let's pray for his kingdom to come. But let's not be thwarted by it. Let's not think that God somehow lost control. That's what, if you read Psalm 73, I'd encourage you to do that. That's what the psalmist did. He almost stumbled. He said, when I saw the prospering of the wicked, I almost stumbled. But here's what he said. He said, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw their prosperity and wicked. 
But then when you go to verse 16, but then I thought of how to understand this. It seemed to me a wearisome task. In other words, it's burdening to us. How can they keep killing Christians? Then he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by tears. That's going to be the end that he brings. So please, don't lose sight. Don't lose perspective. We're in a unique situation here in this country. It hasn't been this way. If you were a mother and you were trying to raise children in the 1500s, half of your kids would not make it past 12. That was, the, that was life. That was life. So we want to get perspective on life, but we want to get it from the perspective from God. Also, in light of the day, I want you to live fighting fear. In other words, pursue faith. Pursue faith that Ebola and all these situations that we've mentioned, don't, do not fight that they don't cause you to fear as if God somehow lost control. We want to fight for faith that God is going to do. He's going to fit us for heaven through these trials and struggles. And then last, I would say, in light of the day, live. Just live. Don't, don't get hold up. Don't get separatistic. Just live. A lot of us want to get, we want to kind of retreat and, and kind of build walls around us to weather the storm. Don't do it. Don't do it. In fact, in 1 Peter, he instructs us clearly. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Just for the sake of your prayers. It's not going to help you with the end of the world, but just be for your prayers. Now, be prayerful as the end draws near. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. So that's a command. To prepare for the end, keep loving one another. And earnestly, and he says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I love that. Like we're going to be grumbling before the end's coming. No, he says, just keep living. He says, just live. I mean, don't, don't get caught up in hysteria and fear and concern. Just live. You know, during John F. Kennedy's presidential run-up in the 60s, he would often close some of his speeches with um, words given by Colonel Davenport. He was the, the head of the Connecticut legislator. And uh, there was a, a scene in his life, in Davenport's life, he lived in, uh, this took place in 1789. And Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, in 1960, would often quote the story. And uh, the story was this, that they're having legislation, and all of a sudden the winds whipped up to a fury, dark clouds came rolling in, thunder, lightning. It was like this massive, terror, ominous storm coming in. And people actually began to panic, and they began to call for an adjournment so they could go home because they feared the end of, the, the end of life was coming. So here's what Davenport said to them. He says, the day of judgment is either approaching or it's not. If it's not, there's no cause for adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. Therefore, I wish the candles be brought and we'll keep working. That's the way the Christian works. Why? Because we know the end of the story. We don't have to panic. We don't have to run separatistic. We don't have to pull away. We can live lives showing hospitality, earnestly loving one another, praying diligently for one another. That's how we handle the end. Why? Because we know what the end is. And it's the Christ, the righteousness will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. That's a verse, 43, that you can chew on all day long. Let me pray for us and then Nick's going to give us some instruction. Father, thank you for the grace of your word to us. We're overwhelmed with your kindness and your mercy and grace. 
Lord, the promises you give us are profoundly buoying in a season of doubt and uncertainty. God, thank you for your son. Thank you that he has become a curse that we might become a son. I pray this in the name of Jesus.